Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. I hope this finds you all well this morning. We have a very interesting program which is near and dear to my heart and soul. It's about mental illness. Yes, what mental illness, which has a long history, going back 5,000 years, perhaps even further. Mental illness. Why do we call it illness? How is it, how is it that we treat people who act differently than the vast majority as if they're ill? How is it that we relate to them as they're deficient rather than simply different? Is it because when they don't fit in, they don't contribute? Is it because they create problems? Is it because they are dangerous? Why is it that we look at them and act towards them in such a manner? The, the issue of diagnosing people, of putting labels on them, has been so much a part of my life for the last 50 years that in the name of transparency, I should say that I'm not an unbiased observer or just your host of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. And so in that name of transparency, let me say that what you hear from me today, both personally and professionally, are my views and not the views of KZYX or National Public Radio. For the last 50 years, there have been many of us within my profession who have worked hard towards removing the stigma of labels from people. We don't call people who have pneumonia, pneumonia. We say, there's Fred and he has pneumonia. We don't call people who have broken bones, broken bones. We don't say, hey, there's a broken leg. We say, hey, there's Harriet and she has a broken leg. And yet, and yet, when it comes to psychological issues and psychological and emotional behaviors, we have come to a place where we, we refer to the person as if they are the disease. We, call, we say, to look, he's schizophrenic. He's a schizophrenic. We don't say, that's Joseph, and he's suffering from something called schizophrenia. We say, look, I'm meeting with a group of addicts. No, we're not meeting with a group of addicts. I've never met with a group of addicts, though I treat people who are suffering from addiction. I treat people who are suffering from addiction. They're people first. We're all people first. And yet, in this area of what's referred to as mental illness, people take on their, their diagnosis. They become, I'm bipolar. They become... I am bipolar. That's, who, that's my identity. I am schizophrenic. I am a neurotic. I, I am, I'm an obsessive compulsive. And so the person's identity then gets transfixed around their illness and around their diagnosis. It's unimaginable, and yet it's real. 5,000 years ago, we used to drill holes in people's heads 
It was called trepanning. And we used to drill holes in their heads in order to let out evil spirits. Yes, priests, doctors would do rituals and drill into their heads in order to let this stuff out. Sometime later, the ancient Hebrews believed that illness was inflicted upon humans by God as a punishment for committing sin. Demons were thought to cause the illnesses and they were attributed to God's wrath. Moving forward, what did we do? Mental illness was then attributed to supernatural force, a, a, a displeased deity. But again, it was called illness. It was called illness. The beliefs about these illnesses and the treatments, they altered, but between the 5th and 3rd centuries before the Common Era, the Greek physician Hippocrates, he denied the long-held belief that mental illness was caused by supernatural forces. And in, instead, he proposed that it occurred from natural occurrences in the human body, particularly some kind of pathology in the brain. What could he do? What kind of treatment could be offered to the person? How do we get these humors out of the brain? Hmm. Sometimes the, the people were left to be taken care of by their families. Sometimes by the communities. Nobody knew quite what to do. People were given emetics, laxatives. They were bled with leeches. But nobody knew quite what to do. Then, somewhere around... 792 in the common era, we had the first mental hospital. Yes, and where was it? In Baghdad, of all places. Then, such places proliferated. There were establishments of asylums and institutions to take people away from the custody of their family and restrain them. There became a stigma that was attached to these people. When families, couldn't, when families couldn't treat their, their, their family, their loved ones in the home when they couldn't care for them, they were ashamed and they locked them in the cellars. They, they caged them up with the animals in pig pens. They put them in the control of servants if they had servants. Others were just simply abandoned and left to a life of begging and vagrancy. And this, this went on. These people were beaten, they were thrown in jail, they were thrown in dungeons. The asylums proliferated, they became a business. In the 1500s to the 1800s, they were chained, they were locked up. Finally, in England, in 1547, they built an asylum that was so horrific that it earned the nickname Bedlam. You've all heard the word Bedlam. And then other places started around the world. Mexico, South America. Places were built where people could send people to get them out of the way so that they wouldn't see them. They, people weren't, they, there were no attempts at cures. There was some purging and bloodletting, but basically they were locked up they were, and everything imaginable was practiced on them. 
gyrating chairs and shaking up their blood and holding them upside down. And this went on and on for hundreds of years until there were, in the 1800s there was a humanitarian movement and what became known as moral treatment took place. Yes, all of a sudden people said, Why, how about if we just are nice to them? How about if we just gave them some kind of jobs in these hospitals? How about if we just tr treated them with air and food and water and love? And moral treatment took place. But it didn't last very long because moral treatment was very difficult. And instead, and instead, they started to build businesses around the hospitals and there became a whole period of time where mental patients had to work on farms and work with animals. The first mental hospital I ever worked at in 1960, that's 50 years ago, at Le in Lake Winnipesaukee in, in New Hampshire, it was called the Laconia State School for the Mentally Retarded and Emotionally Disturbed. It was a farm, and everybody that could possibly work on the farm worked on the farm. And those that couldn't work on the farm, they were often, if they acted out, if they acted funny, if they were difficult to treat, they were wrapped in sailcloth, heavy sailcloth canvas, and they were sprayed with cold water. Some of them were lobotomized. Prefrontal lobotomy, piece of the brain, was severed off from the rest of the brain. Some of them were given massive doses of shock therapy. This was pre-psychotropic medicine. And then we moved on to a period where psychotropic medicine came into being. We moved past insulin shock treatment. We moved past drilling holes. And we moved to what is called the straitjacket of the mind. Our program today is with a film director whose film, Crooked Beauty, will be in this week's Mendocino Film Festival. Our guest today is Ken Paul Rosenthal. He's the director of the film. He's an independent filmmaker. He's a teacher, a mental health activist. Ken's films weave personal and political narratives into natural and urban landscapes. He holds an MA in creative and interdisciplinary arts, a master's in fine arts and cinema production. Ken has taught film as a means of cultivating personal vision in workshops and universities, nationally and internationally. He is a recipient of the Kodak Award for Cinematography. Ken, welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Thank you so much, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you here on this topic, as I said, that is so, so near and dear and important to me. The film, Crooked, Crooked Beauty, Crooked Beauty, is a narrative about a woman, Jax Ashley McNamara, that has suffered from what is described and called bipolar disorder, previously called manic depressive illness. Paul, Ken Paul, what, 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 uh, how did this come about? What led you to make a movie about a person suffering from this 
very powerful, what is called illness? Well, uh, about six years ago, uh, there was a magazine that she had co-edited called Navigating the Space Between Brilliance and Madness, uh, and it was laying around my apartment. It didn't even belong to one of my roommates. It belonged to a friend of one of them. So I happened upon it, and as I flipped through it, I ran into a essay by Jax called Anatomy of Flight. And right there in the first paragraph, I was so struck by some of the phrases, uh, one in particular that really cut very deep to the bone and heart, was slanted sunlight could make me dizzy with its beauty, and witnessing unkindness made me feel physical pain. And she also, in that same initial paragraph, wrote about no one being able to understand all the rapture and the rage in her head. And this spoke so deeply to something within myself that I did not have the language for. And this is really critical about movements around radical mental health and the Icarus Project in particular, which she formed, and I'm sure we'll speak to later in, in the program. But the fact that me as a filmmaker who was so sensitive to light from such a very deeply early age in ways that were both aesthetic and harmful, as I was quite obsessed with staring into the sun until it was painful, until there were scars on my retina, until I teared. And as a kid, I couldn't conceptualize why I was drawn to something that was causing me pain on one level, yet I was so curious about. And then in that article, in that opening paragraph, she was able to, in a very concise way, bring together these rituals of play that were also dangerous. And that phrase where she speaks about um, the uh, uh, rapture and the rage, it spoke to what I later came to understand as the dangerous gift. She's taking sort of these extremes of rage and rapture. And I saw them as analogs for light and shadow on an aesthetic level as a filmmaker. And from that point on, the project was inseminated in a thunderclap of inspiration. I've never been so thoroughly uh, seated with a vision for uh, an idea in my entire life. So I was drawn in so, uh, so immaculately that I contacted her, and within two days we had uh, connected and uh, were discussing the possibility of working on this project. So if I understand you correctly, you, you resonated... To, to her notion of the dangerous gift, the idea that, that the darker inclinations, what are referred to as darker inclinations and experiences, might allow us to, to access transcendent possibilities. That's what caught you, isn't it? Yes, and it's a tricky phrase because in no way do we want to romanticize one's mental health struggles or the dark side. Um, but I think one way to illuminate starting to speak about this uh, very intriguing phrase is with uh, a quote by Carl Jung, who said, if you get rid of the pain before you have answered its questions, you get rid of the self along with it. That's very, right. very, very powerful. So there, there is information there for us. Um, and pe uh, many people who struggle with their mental health have sensitivities that are so uh, deep that if, if one does not have the tools or the mentorship or the community to manage those sensitivities, um, it could be considered toxic. Um, and 
the dangerous gift suggests, again, that there is rapture and there is rage. You may have access to some of this insight, but it can also be the very thing which uh, makes you think about uh, becoming a bridge statistic. Um, and it's, it's, it's critical that we find a way to access this without romanticizing it, but also and respecting its uh, darker aspect, but at the same time saying, well, do I have something I can learn here? This is a gift, but uh, like Icarus, you could fly too high and burn and crash. So how can we navigate the space between brilliance and madness? This is the essence of what the dangerous gift is about. You've mentioned Icarus now a few times. I think it would be helpful if you explain the Greek myth of Icarus to our listeners. Sure. Well, quite simply, uh, Icarus was a little boy who had an inventor father, and they were imprisoned in a labyrinth. And in order to escape the labyrinth, Icarus's father built wings of wax for both of them. But prior to their escape, he cautioned uh, Icarus, to not fly too high, otherwise the heat from the sun will melt your wings and you will crash and burn and drown. And, of course, uh, he became so intoxicated with his powers of flight that Icarus flew too high, and he did indeed crash to the ocean and lose his life. And it's a really powerful metaphor that was at the genesis of the creation of the Icarus Project, which was co-founded by both Jax and Sasha Altman de Bruhl. And uh, it, when, when they were discussing all these letters that uh, uh, Sasha had received from people all over the country after the publication of an article he wrote in the San Francisco Bay Guardian about his own experiences, they decided there needed to be a way to bring these voices together and create community around these struggles. And the Icarus myth perfectly conceptualized and articulated this um, struggle to live a life not of disease and damage, but of insight and integration. And yet at the same time, the very wings that were enabling freedom when taken too high became the wings of destruction as they melted. Exactly. There's another great phrase in that um, uh, 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 book, Navigating the Safe Space Between Brilliance and Madness, that inspired my, my film project, uh, which Jack's coined, and it goes like this, birds with perfectly symmetrical feathers cannot fly. And it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous phrase, because it really hits the nail on the head in terms of how it's in our asymmetries, it's in our imperfections, it's finding a skillfulness to harness that which is not perfectly balanced, that we can glide, that we can fly, that we can navigate that space between brilliance and madness. Ashley, or do you call her Jax? Jax, yes. She goes by Jax. She goes by Jax. Jax's story is a story of someone who has had these experiences, these altered experiences, if you will, all of her life. And while you're going to be showing your film, and by the way, folks, if you want to, uh, if you want to see this film and you can't make it to the Mendocino Film Festival, there are DVDs of this wonderful film that are available uh, online. You can go to crookedbeauty.com, and we'll talk about that more during the program, but do keep in mind, crookedbeauty.com, and you can get a DVD. The film is, is touching, the film is also wrenching, and you're gonna be hearing clips from the film during, during this interview. 
uh, and these clips will be of uh, Jack's speaking, and then you'll hear uh, Ken, our director, uh, commenting, as well as myself. Uh, in our first clip, which I'm going to play soon, uh, Jax is talking about the fact that mental illness does not uh, exist in a vacuum. And mental illness is not something that we can just attribute to brain disorder. That mental, what we call mental illness, and I have to correct myself because I also start using this fr phrase mental illness, but if, if you go back to people like Thomas Saz, and I hope some of you who are interested in this topic will look up Thomas Saz, S-Z-A-S-Z. -Z. He questions the whole issue of whether there is such a thing. He, one of his books is called The Myth of Mental Illness, that we've created a myth around it by putting people in this category, that we have categorized them as deficient and as ill rather than different and not necessarily fitting in with the rest of us. And that's what Jax talks about in this initial clip. Michael, do you have that, uh, that first clip ready? Let's listen now together, folks. This is Jax Ashley McNamara, Crooked Beauty, speaking herself. There's this fundamental impulse either towards suppressing our traumas by medicating the symptoms of them away, or facing down our traumas, quote unquote, by delving straight into the teeth of whatever our childhood beasts are. There's not a lot of focus on what is in the middle. What does it mean to acknowledge the way that the past has been a formative thing in our lives without reliving the past over and over? Mental illness does not exist in a vacuum. Saying that it is nothing but a biological brain disorder lets everybody off the hook and makes it this situation where it's just the individual versus his or her inevitable biological madness. I think that a lot of people who get labeled as mentally ill in our society have really broken hearts. A lot of the behaviors and the attitudes that I had before I got locked up in a psych ward and given a diagnosis had a lot more to do with trying to escape from my sadness than I think they necessarily had to do with a mental illness. Thank you, Michael. What do you want to say about that, Ken? Well, it's clear from what she's explaining here is that madness is not just about a biological, biochemical condition. It's a reflection of a social condition. And we inherit trauma and experience trauma on so many levels. It could be in the domestic context. It could be something that's perpetrated on us directly. And I think we inherit it socially. I mean, think about, think about this world we live in. Um, we're at war all the time. Uh, we are siphoning off uh, our money away from creativity and from weapons of mass construction into weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we lose a loved one. Uh, we lose our job. All these things make us consider our mental health in ways that would not be very sustainable. Um, also, it speaks to social inequities, too. 
and all these things are crazy making. You know, everyone struggles. It's human to struggle. But it's happening in a way that's increasingly covert. It's happening in a way that isn't on the surface. We live in a very superficial society of appearances and distractions. So we don't always have a space that allows us to integrate with the things that we struggle with day to day just as a matter of living as a human being in our culture. And Western culture is very insidious in this way because if we're distracted, if we're looking for easy outs, if we're looking for an over-the-counter, and I don't mean medication necessarily, but just some easily accessible remedy for that which ails us, even if we're not aware that we're ailing, then these things feed craziness as well. Um, and I think that's why it's particularly, you know, for me, making this film and learning about the Icarus Project, it exposed me to a sort of a more politicized and activist way, an awareness of dealing with these struggles that are not just about the self, but the relationship of the self to culture that I, I never had any language or awareness of. And we need to realize that taking care of ourselves we're each a very integrate thread in, uh, in the fabric of society. And to compromise our individuality, our authenticity that we're born into this world with in a culture that does not honor difference, but rather pathologizes it, this is crazy. Social justice arises out of a need to celebrate difference rather than pathologize it. That's in our strength. And if our culture is all about a sort of a cookie-cutter vision of what it is to be a human being, you know, our culture is the great leveler. Everything's so homogenous. Well, all this is going to feed a sense of not fitting in, and, uh, and that's crazy-making. Yes, and one of the things she talks about so poignantly here is medicating the difference. Or, as she points out, the alternative that she has faced to medicating the difference, putting her in a straitjacket, has been facing the traumas head-on to such an extent that it's overwhelming. And she asks us, is there a place for a middle zone? Mm -hmm. What can we do? Or do we have to continually you know, re go into our lives and go into the past over and over and over again? But she also says in this, in this first clip that saying that it's a biological brain disorder lets everybody off the hook. Mm -hmm. And it really does, because that's a way of saying you're incurable, except perhaps for medication that'll hold you in check, but there is nothing that we can really do for you because it's a biological brain disorder, and that is total nonsense. It is total nonsense that is not backed up by science whatsoever, and my 50 years in, 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 in my profession right. has given me you know, example after example of people who had supposedly incurable diseases who are now living lives of grace and harmony. Right. Not necessarily the same life as everyone else, but certainly a life that, that gives them a sense of, 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 of grace, of, of, of being part of rather than being excluded and, and having this label on their head. Yes, and what's so key about that phrase, saying that it is nothing but a biological brain disorder, believe it or not, the, the key in that phrase is the word saying, because it's when we, you know, there's such power in words, when you name something, there's a quality of we make it so. But our belief systems become so calcified around saying a phrase that's been put in our hands that it becomes self-fulfilling. Self-fulfilling. That's what we call the self-fulfilling prophecy. We need to become partners in our own wellness. And a big initial step is how do we talk 
about our struggles. How do we talk about our struggles with one another so that they're acceptable they're acceptable conversations no matter where we are. They're not conversations that have to be done in private or in a therapist's office. Well, specifically, how can we talk about our struggles in a way that it, we're creating new language for these experiences instead of perpetuating the status quo of what we've been giving? You see, because if, we, yes. if, we, if we're told by the DSM or any other sort of manual or institution that this is the language we use, then we're becoming partners in their cures as well. If they, if, if, so it's, it's ironic in a way. The paradox, the damning paradox is Jacks, like so many others, initially find a certain degree of satori and comfort uh, in having a name. Oh, I'm bipolar, and here are the symptoms for it. So the cure for these symptoms are XYZ. Yes. usually involves some sort of medication, and that's a whole no, you know, additional uh, level of our discussion here. But, um, you know, I think it's important for people who are listening that it's not an either-or proposition. It's not a matter of they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. Let's wave our freak flag. I mean, plenty of us still take medication. It's just that what's wonderful about the Icarus Project, I mean, the nature of anarchy is that you're, you're moving against the wind, but you have to know the wind. People are coming from the, the status quo, and there's knowledge there, too. It informs you know, the changes. Uh, so it's not about, it may be anti-psychiatry, the radical mental health movement, but it's not necessarily anti-medication. But they're definitely not waving a flag like this, like a pill is a panacea. It doesn't even really have to be anti, because if a new language is formed by this movement, it can simply be a proactive moving forward in a different direction and let the weeds of psychiatry die of malnutrition. She also, thank you. She also, Jax also talks here about how what what people who are labeled mentally ill really have broken hearts. And with a tear in my eye, I wonder how many people who are listening to this program who have considered themselves suffering from mental illness, how many of my patients who are now listening have wondered if they themselves are really suffering from a broken heart, have asked themselves, why? Am I crying so much? Why do I feel so sad so often? And when will the sadness end? This you know, is... it's okay to cry. Of course. You know, uh, in our culture, boys don't cry. You know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get on with your life. Just get on with it. Um, you know, no one, it's not about necessarily having a, a, a Buddhist ethic, you know, Buddhism 101, life is suffering. I mean, there's certainly some truth in that, but it's not about trying to romanticize suffering. It's just to say there's grace in allowing ourselves to hurt. But then it's like, well, now what am I going to do about it? Exactly. It's part of the human condition, and crying is part of the human condition, as I often say. If we, Why else do we have those little holes in our eyes? Partly to let water out uh, for irritation, but partly to let out the tears of emotion. And by the way, the two different tears can have different chemical constituencies, mm. the tears of emotion and the tears that, that lubricate our eyes. That's the research has been done. We're going to take a very short break here, folks. You're going to want to stay tuned because we're going to come back and play the next clip with Jax. Right now, a little underwriting. Support for mind, body, health, and politics comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Ready to help plan power systems. Advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes, through sun, 
wind, and water. Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 707-485-8359 and radiantsolartech.com. Back to our interview with Ken Paul Rosenthal, independent filmmaker, teacher, and mental health activist whose film, Crooked Beauty, is going to be shown this week at the Mendocino Film Festival in the village of Mendocino. It's now an international film festival. It was started just five, six years ago by Keith and Judith Brandman. It's now become an internationally renowned film festival. Ken, you're with us. Hello. He's still with us. Yes, I am. We're talking about Crooked Beauty. We're going to play a clip now from Ken's film. This is directly from the film Crooked Beauty. The voice you are about to hear is Jax Ashley McNamara, who has spent her life dealing with, living with, working with, and advocating for what is called a new approach, a radical approach, perhaps, to what has been called mental illness. Let's hear the clip, Mike. If I was determined to live my life in a city and to work a really intensive, steady job in an office, I think I would have to take medication to do that. But I don't think that fact means that I have a disease. It means that it would take a pharmaceutical substance to override my instincts to make me capable of fitting into a system that was not designed for someone with a spirit like mine. Stay tuned. She's coming right back. I'm just really sensitive and my moods shift in ways that I don't really keep a rhythm that fits with the clock of capitalist society. I'm learning more to listen to my own rhythms, particularly as they pertain to things like seasons and light. And it's unreasonable to think that you should be able to be performing the same every day in a world that's constantly changing. How about that? If she had to live a certain kind of life, she would have to take medication. That's the line more than any other single line in the entire film that uh, almost always elicits a response from the audience in the theater, a really deep knowing kind of a recognition. And for a lot of people, it's something they're conscious of, and I bet you for so many more, they're hearing this humble yet dead spot on statement of how they've been living their lives, kind of anesthetized uh, for so many years. There's a great quote here I have by J. Krishnamurti that says, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And it's this sense of, as he and Jax are saying, she who does not write is written upon. We need to make our own maps. We need to rewrite the script for our lives. And if we're living a life where we enter the same office every single day under the same harsh lights, uh, that kind of regularity, and I'm not being critical, by the way, of anyone who works in an office, if they love their jobs. I'm talking about a sort of a straitjacket kind of existence, though, which I guess there's some judgment there. I'm sorry for those of you who are listening from an office now, but uh, let's face it, we weren't born into that kind of um, virtual womb where we're connecting to one another through uh, you know, a computer all day, 
away from the very elements and uh, of, of the animate world. This is the world we were born into, and I'm not saying we should all walk around in loincloths and live in grass huts, but, uh, you know, the world, as she says so poignantly, is changing all the time. Yes, but and, what she's also saying, Ken, is that whereas perhaps some of us, perhaps even many of us, are able to make that, I, that, that, that adaptation to the office, to the lights, to the job, it doesn't mean that those who are unable to do so have a disease. It doesn't mean that those who are unable to do so right. should take medication in order to fit in. Well, we're, we're very porous beings. This is, I think, what uh, has allowed our species to subsist and persist through time. It's that we, we're, we're shapeshifters by nature. Um, we're very vulnerable. We're very sensitive. And, you know, when it gets hot, we, we adapt. When it gets cold, we move to warmer climates uh, and so on. And we eat different foods at different times of year. But now, if everything is produced for us and we have this sort of existence where we're sort of cut off from that innate ability to shift and change in tandem with the world, which is always in a state of change, and we're still in that world, well, you know, she's suggesting that that could be crazy-making, too. But uh, what do we do to deal with that? Uh, we, we would take a pill. I, I mean, it's just so, such a phenomenal, phenomenal line. I would need to take medication if I had an office job. But that does not mean that I have a disease. That's the second mm -hmm. half of that poignant line. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. fact that she would have to take it in order to fit in does not mean she has a disease. We're right. going to play another clip right now, and this is one talking about sensitivity, because how often have I, during my life have I heard people say, I'm too sensitive, I, I need to learn to put up walls, I don't know how to shield myself, and and... And we ask the question, you know, what, what is it that, we, that it, we're shielding ourselves from? Is it from one another? Is, is, there, is there not enough love to go around? What is it? Let's hear from Jax Ashley McNamara about sensitivity and her sensitivity. Mike, let's hear that clip, please. When you open up your radio transmitters and you are taking in all this information about the world, it ain't all good. When I open up in that way, I don't just see beauty and light and God and grass. I see suffering and bodies rotting in the streets and injustice and a lot of pain and terror and fear also comes in. Because the dark side of humanity is very, very, very real. And we don't want to think about that. There's moments when people have glimpses of what is luminous and transcendent. And that's fantastic. But no one stays there. Stay tuned. She's coming back, folks. God knows there have been more times in my life than I could ever count when I have been like, please take this thing away from me. I don't want it. It is too painful. It is too much pain and suffering. You can have it back. Just let me close down and be like a normal person walking around the world. I don't want access to these frequencies. Can I please just shut the dial off? So much of my creative output in the world is driven by trying to reconcile those patterns and those swings. It's one of those ironies where definitely when I'm at my most stable, I don't tend to create very much. And when I'm swinging back and forth and moving between different states of consciousness, 
it's more painful and there's more friction and I create a lot more and it drives me crazy, you know, because part of me just wishes that this whole dangerous gift thing didn't have to be like that. Thank you, Michael. She's talking there, Ken, about the dangerous gift, mm-hmm. about the sensitivity that at times is what she needs to produce and which at other times drives her crazy. And she says, I just wish I could. Can't I just shut the dial off? I just, I just want to be a regular person. Yeah. This clip is my favorite in the entire film. And it really appeals to me as an artist because this is where she's beginning to talk about how can I harness and find grace in my creative output. But that means reconciling these patterns and these swings. And this speaks a lot to the aesthetic treatment of the film. And again, that rapture and rage that she speaks about in the first paragraph of her essay, Anatomy of Flight, that inspired the whole film. This is why the film, um, if I may briefly digress into this, uh, works with a union of oppositions. I wanted to find visual analogs to the extremes of mania and depression. How could I show how they're interdependent? Um, uh, How can I show that our experience is about vacillating back and forth, but as a, um, a Dharma teacher said to me many years ago, um, how can we not be so reactive from one experience we have that we flash all the way to the other side? How can we limit our movement back and forth in a way that doesn't mean we're standing still, but is manageable? So I try and harmonize these uh, sort of uh, emotional extremes in the visual of light and dark, fast and slow, the natural world and the human-made world, uh, close-up shots, far-away shots, silent sound. And, and I think this really works very, very well to embody the speaking subject. Uh, Jax is largely unseen for the whole film, save the introduction and the prologue. And this is what I think makes the film and what she is sharing with her experience as a touchstone for the viewer, because we are seeing the world as a vessel, as a container, in which these uh, oppositions, this, uh, these patterns and swings, this rapture and rage, these seemingly uh, disparate uh, oppositions are all harmoniously reconciled in nature and in the natural world. So this becomes the backdrop for her testimonial, and it becomes a way for people to take the experience from the theater out into the world. And I don't just mean being on a nature walk, but I mean as they move through the city and they see aspects of nature and the man-made world overlapping, sometimes in great disharmony and sometimes um, very in a very complementary way. Yes, because she also says that I don't just see beauty and light and God and grass. Mm-hmm. I see suffering and bodies rotting in the streets exactly. and injustice and a lot of pain and terror and fear. It's as if she walks down the street and sees homeless people or people on the sidewalk and she can allow herself or perhaps... It's not even allowing. It just happens at times that she feels their pain, whereas the rest of us avert our eyes and don't look deeply into the eyes of the homeless person. Right, and And here's the key point. Even if you're not conscious of of what happens within your, your heart when you witness this, you are still absorbing it. We are porous beings. We're all sponges, let's say, in different states of, um, you know, being, uh, uh, of absorbency. 
but we are all absorbing our, the, the aspects of our environment in our world, covertly, overtly, and it's up to us, I think, to be a lot more conscious and self-reflective and be willing to do the work. I mean, not to say, you know, what is there that I don't feel, but just to maybe look outside the sort of rubric of what is considered normal in our culture. It's a very, very sort of pre-cut. And, and furthermore, mental health is something that just exists in this box around your head. I, I look forward to the time when we won't even use the phrase mental health, that um, it'll just be part of our whole physiology when we consider our health, when we consider our wellness. And um, a lot of that path is opening your eyes up and being more aware of what's going on around you. You know, what, what are you, you know, I think the process of being a filmmaker, let alone a human being, is your, your greatest tool is, is to be deeply observant. This is, this is what I, I, I teach, you know, my students who are really just perpetuating the status quo of the stories they've been fed by the mainstream. You asked an interesting question when you said, what is there that I don't feel? And I would ask on the other side of that, what am I feeling that I don't know where it came from? Mm. What is it when I walk down the street? Because as you point out, if we are porous, if we are porous organisms, it means when we walk down the street, we are picking up things. Even if we don't make contact with the homeless person or the exactly. person who's suffering on the street, you're saying that as we walk by them, in some way we sense them. And I agree with you. We do. We feel it. And how many of those feelings that we accumulate, and at what point of accumulation do we start, each of us, to be somewhat overwhelmed in the same way that Jax talks about feeling so overwhelmed that she would just like to close down and be like a normal person walking around in the world. And what a loaded statement, you know, a normal person. A normal person. You know, I think, you know, a lot of us who are deeply sensitive have had that. You know, we feel sort of at the mercy of our own sensitivities, and we have to be careful of not, again, romanticizing and say, well, all, all people who are deeply sensitive are artists. To be an artist, you must suffer. You must be so, so sensitive. Ah. But there is... Some correlation there. I mean, there's a wonderful book by Kay Redfield Jameson called Touched with Fire, which is a really, really important um, uh, Bible of research for me when I was starting uh, this, this film project. And she, she charts the trajectory, the historical trajectory of, of art making and, and, um, and uh, madness with many, many seminal figures from, from art history. And uh, so there is something to be said about the correlation, but not in, the, in so much, again, to romanticize it and say, you must be crazy, you must be mad, rather, to, uh, to make good work. But that artwork or some sort of creative expression is a means of working with these elements that, you know, a more uh, mainstream culture will not uh, value. Uh, you know, are you going to, you know, there for, for me and, and Jax and so many others, it's not creative. There's, there's no sort of authentic uh, expression to living in an anesthetized work environment. Um, no, but there's no particular, we don't want to give the impression that there's some particular value towards purposely getting into some kind of an illness in order to, in Jameson's words, elevate your responsiveness and, and sensitivity. 
Uh, because, you know, there, there, there's been arguments historically, like uh, uh, James Joyce, for example, who made the argument that, uh, you know, in order to, to, to write uh, the kind of things he wrote, he had to be a big drunk. And there have been that, that's an argument that's gone on throughout, uh, you know, Irish uh, writing history that, you know, the, the, the necessity for alcohol, the necessity for drugs in order to free, yeah. to free the creative spirit. No, not I don't at want, all. I don't, and I don't think either you or I nor, nor Jax is making the argument here that one need get into these what are altered states of consciousness in order to be able to be a creative person. No, no, not at all. But certainly she's talking about suffering the slings and arrows of her own outrageous fortune and wishes at times that she just didn't have it so poignantly. I guess, you know, in the clip we just played, I really love when she speaks about radio transmitters, you know, when you open up your radio transmitters. almost, And, you know, I think... You know, I remember reading Yoko Ono once years ago said that making good art is like having good radio reception. And again, this idea of like, well, there's a dial there that you want to shut off because the radio transmitter is in reception mode all the time. You know, there are, for me, there are 10 narratives going on in my head at any one time. I don't mean I hear 10 voices, but I'm thinking about 10 things at once. It's very hard for me to be still. Um, when I walk down the street, it's, I really, I mean, this is why it's my favorite clip, uh, audio clip from the film. I really, I really get what she's talking about. I know what's going on behind me and, and inside me and to the sides and in front of me all at once. I have this 360 degree awareness and, uh, and a way to manage in my, uh, my creativity. And it's not something I consciously do. I don't say, oh, well, I'm receiving all this, so I guess I feel a little bit uh, mad. I think I'm going to go and, and do some artwork. But it's just I develop a disposition, a creative disposition over the years as a way of managing all this information. And it's not about having to be an artist with a capital A. I'm talking about just living creatively. Yes, and managing the way you put that, managing all this information. Because, you know, in a clip, she ends this particular clip by saying, and it drives me crazy because right. part of me just wishes this whole dangerous gift didn't have to be like that. Yeah, really and important. You can feel the pain coming through. You know, I think I'm going to take a phone call here, Ken. I think somebody wants to, uh, to, to say sure. something to you. Let's, see, let's take a, see if we can take this call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yes, this is an intriguing uh, interview. I was wondering... Um, where can I see this film this weekend, and yes. how do I get tickets? Great question. This is at the uh, at the Mendocino Film Festival in the village of Mendocino. If you have a computer, you can just go to mendocinofilmfestival.com. Uh, otherwise, you can go to Odd Fellows Hall in, uh, in in the village of Mendocino. the um, The film festival is this Friday and Saturday. Um, by the way, those of you listening also and, and, uh, and caller, please know that a DVD of the film is available to you if you go to www.crookedbeauty.com. Again, www.crookedbeauty.com. And you can, right, Ken, you can get a, they can order DVDs right on the website. Right. And it's, it's um, for those who might not be computer savvy, it's www.crookedbeauty.com. <laughs> www.crookedbeauty.com. Right. We have time for one more clip, and here now is Jax Ashley McNamara talking about being marginalized 
by society and carrying around this thing that is called by others madness. Let's hear the clip, Michael. There are stages in the formation of our identity where it's extremely empowering to own the part of us that society marginalizes and say there's nothing wrong with this part. And then I think there are also times when we can move beyond those definitions. I am less and less identifying as a mad person or a liberated mad person and I'm identifying more as a person who is traumatized by her life experience just like so many other people. I don't want to think that I carry around this thing, this madness. I think that I go through extreme states of consciousness. Sometimes that journey can look to people like it is descent in and out of madness. But fundamentally, I don't see myself as a person who is carrying around my madness. I see myself as a person who is in a process of change. Thank you, Michael, that's good. A person who's in a process of change. Mm -hmm. That's very different than a person who has a static A tattooed or burnt into their forehead, isn't it? Yeah. We, and, and people in our culture, I think, we're, we're taught to take great comfort in regularity. We want to sort of perpetuate... Um, Again, this idea of what is normal, and we do that often through material acquisition. You know, these things, we, our life becomes about managing that which we acquire. Um, another great phrase here by Chris Krauss um, goes, because capitalism's insincere, it demands sincerity from its art. Um, and, and by the way, for those of you listening, the reason that capitalism has come up several times in this interview, and you've heard it from Jax, you've heard it from our director, Ken Paul, today, is because capitalism requires a certain conformity to a way of being. In order to work, and to order to work in an industrial society, it, a capitalism makes that requirement. That isn't to say that capitalism is good or bad. That isn't to make a moral judgment on it. It's just to say that that is given. If you're working in an assembly line in Detroit, you must do certain things over and over and over again. Mm. And the point that's well taken here by Jax and uh, by Ken in the film is that because certain people are unable or unwilling, if you will, to work in that kind of regimentation or that kind of culture does not in and of itself justify giving them the label of mentally ill, sick, bad, crazy, or stupid. Right. It just means that they are different. You know, we certainly need spaces for people who are having experiences that uh, lead them to be a danger to themselves or others. But that, again, is almost a whole other discussion about um, uh, traditional psych wards or hospitals, which you uh, eloquently shared in your introduction. But, you know, we need what are called satori houses, which is a tradition of a space uh, which um, is, is one of comfort for people, one where they have access to community, 
and to nature and to good food. You know, I never thought I would spend a night in a psych ward, and last April um, I spent a night in one myself. And this is after working with Jax on the film over the course of five years through our interviews, getting to know uh, back, a lot of background on the Icarus Project, reading a lot of books. All my wellness practices fell away. I wasn't taking care of myself. The first thing I did when I, I popped my cork was I called Jax McNamara, who, even beyond the film, I am grateful to her for being there for me. There was community. There was a fellow traveler to reach out to. But the next morning when I woke up, I, it wasn't enough, and I needed to go to the hospital, and I needed to be put in a sort of comatose condition so I could disconnect. Um, sometimes we just, if, if, this, if this is the paradigm in our culture and, and there's not a safe place for us to go to, you know, a, a sort of community, well, the Icarus Project is that community, but um, it's, it, I needed something quick and over-the-counter. You needed a safe place to go to. I needed a safe and, place to go to, and the point I'm trying to make is that that hospital did serve that for me. But the minute I was in there, I knew I was not in the right place. Yes. And I couldn't wait to get out. So let us end there. That was Ken Paul Rosenthal talking about his film, Crooked Beauty. You can hear it at the Mendocino Film Festival. You can see it and hear it this week. Ken, I want to thank you so much for being on the program. I look forward to meeting you in person this week. We're coming to the end of our program. But as we do, I want to remind you that in 1792, in 1792, Philip Pinel in Paris said that mentally ill patients would improve if they were treated with kindness and consideration, if filth, noise, and abuse were eliminated, if patients were unchained, if they were provided with sunny rooms and allowed to exercise freely, if they would be given clean food and clean water, and moral treatment, the consideration and kindness of others. Thank you for listening to this week's Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.